As you probably know, in our Vesper liturgies this season, we're considering the theology of some of the carols that we sing at Christmas. And I think that there are a, good, a lot of good reasons for doing this. I think one of the best reasons for doing this is because, as you well know in your own life, that familiarity brings, breeds indifference, right? And so uh, you, travel the, you travel the same way home through the same neighborhood for years. And all of a sudden, you don't notice the street signs anymore, the names on the streets. You don't notice the neighborhood landmarks. You can virtually get home, travel through your neighborhood, while mentally and emotionally being a thousand miles away. And the same is true with the songs that we sing. You can sing the words flawlessly, right? You can know the tunes, yet emotionally, mentally, you can be a thousand miles away. And so it's good for us to pause and consider once again the theological landscape of our Christmas carols. In some ways, uh, our carols are the neighborhoods that we travel through to get home to Christmas every year. Tonight we come to a carol that's been around for about 150 years. It's a carol I think that will be familiar to many of you. It is, What Child Is This? And the lyrics to the carol are printed on the next uh, page over in your order of worship, in your liturgy. And so I'd love for you to look at that as we consider it together. And I think perhaps what stands out first about the carol um, is the fact that, uh, that it asks us as the singers to begin in confusion. This is a little bit strange for a Christmas carol. In other words, it doesn't ask us to begin, first of all, as, um, as heralds, as we would be, for instance, in Joy to the World. It doesn't ask us to begin, first of all, as sure-minded observers, as we might be if we were singing angels we have heard on high. Instead, our carol tonight asks us to begin as confused observers. We're supposed to be looking at a baby and not knowing what to, to make of the baby. What child is this, right? Who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. And so we begin as a people who need to know how to identify a baby that has come into our midst. We have an identification problem. And so the burden of this carol is to lead us into a place of discovery. The carol wants to take you and I, wants to take the church by the hand and help us to know how to identify Jesus. This is what the carol does. It actually brings you into the nursery room. And it says, look around you. You see those angels over there in the corner. Notice what they're doing. They're singing. Notice that there are shepherds on guard at this very moment. Do you want to know who this child is? Look at these people. That's how you know. Look at the angels. Look at the shepherds. That is how you gain clarity about the identity of this baby. And I want you to notice that it's not by description. It's by worship. In other words, according to the carol, Jesus is not primarily identified by statistical analysis. We know nothing of his, his length, his Billy Rubin score, his head size. None of those things come out in the carol, do they? According to the carol, Jesus is not primarily identified by our personal experience. The carol says nothing about our felt needs. Does it pretend to say that when we walk into the room, all of a sudden our self-esteem shoots through the ceiling? 
Now the carol, according to the, according to the words, the lyrics, tells us that Jesus is primarily identified by worship. By adoration and submission. The rest of the carol is a call to know Jesus in the only way the church can ever know him. And that is through worship. So the carol, it says this, Haste, haste to bring him law, the babe, the son of Mary. That's how you know Jesus. It is the only way we know Jesus. The only way we identify the baby is through worship. So the carol actually goes forward, and we're uh, further than this, and we're thankful for it. The carol teaches us what it actually looks like for us to become a worshiping community. What does it look like for us to be worshipers? In some ways, this is Church Basics 101. And if you look at the lyrics of the carol, I think you'll notice three things that it says about worship. The first is this. That we always end up patronizing what we worship. Another way to say it is this. We, maybe a better way. We pay tribute. We pay tribute to what we worship. You see it in the third stanza. It says, so bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Of course, um, uh, that is a commendation of what the wise men do in Matthew 2.11. Matthew tells us this. The wise men came to Jesus, and this is what he says. They saw the child with Mary, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And Matthew doesn't have to explain the next part. It's a natural connection. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We spend our money. It's natural for all of us. We spend our money, and we materially celebrate that which we adore. It could be anything, right? It could be a football team. It could be a particular zip code for us. But this is what, the carol's right here, and it's what it's teaching us. That economics is deeply connected with worship. This is not allegorical. That the way that we spend our money tells us something about how we worship. The second is this. Carol tells us this. We center our lives around what we worship. You see that in the song. So you notice in the, in, the, in the carol that the shepherds are keeping watch. They are on guard in the manger. And it's interesting because Luke is the only one that tells us anything about the shepherds. When he mentions the shepherds, he never says this. When Luke tells us about the shepherds, he mentions that the shepherds are keeping watch over their flock when the angel appears to them. But he never transfers that watch. He never transfers that guardianship to Jesus. That is the carol's own interpretation and it's intentional. It's the carol's way of saying that the shepherds have a new center to their lives. They have a new priority. The time and the energy that was previously reserved for sheep, I mean, we don't know their names. All we know them by is their vocation. Their lives revolved around sheep. The time and energy, their previous identity has been transferred to this new baby in a manger. Their lives have become centered around Jesus. We center our lives around what we worship. That's the second thing. The third is this. You can't miss it here. Inevitably this happens. It doesn't matter what it is. We always end up gathering around and singing songs and telling stories about what we worship as well. Right? The angels are doing it. Mary's doing it. 
But Carol calls us to do it. And here's the principle. Worship always gives birth to community. Always. Worship always gives birth to art. Worship always gives birth to liturgy. It is intuitive for us. We will share, we will share that which we adore. We will create beauty that reflects that which we worship. We will, in our parlance, you'll appreciate this, <laughs> we will hear, we will love, and we will proclaim the things that are most important to us. And in the carol, that's what it means to be a worshiper. In the carol, worship is not some institutionalized ritual. It is a holy zeal. It is passionate. It is affectionate. It is consonant with Psalm 45. The tone of Psalm 45 is um, the psalmist, whoever he is, is writing a psalm to the king. And this is how Psalm 45 starts. He's just writing to the king. This is what he says. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme as I address my verses to the king. As you read through the psalm, you can actually feel, you can feel it. The scribe's hand is shaking with enthusiasm because he has the privilege of writing a poem of adoration to his king. He is enthralled by the beauty of the king. And you can feel it in the carol as well. That worship is more than formalism. In the carol, here's what worship ends up becoming. Worship is the enjoyment of what we love most. Should throw our money at Jesus? <laughs> Literally. Should throw our money at Jesus? We should send our lives around Jesus? We should gather together, not because it happens to be Sunday, but because we cannot wait to be together and to rehearse the the heroics of Jesus as his loyal loyal admirers. That's worship. And in and of itself, that would be plenty for a carol to take on at Christmas. That's a lot to, you know, it's a lot for a carol right there. But there's more here, and what is still left is a powerful irony that addresses this reality. There's a disconnect between what we feel that we ought to be and who we know ourselves to really be. And so if you're reading, and you're, you probably should be singing, not reading, but if you're uh, singing the carol, you'll notice that there are actually not one, but two points of confusion in the carol. So um, we've already addressed the first point. There's, the first question comes at the beginning of the first stanza. But there's another one. And it happens at the beginning of the second stanza. The beginning of the second stanza, the words go like this. So here's the king. And so why? Why lies he in such mean a state? And what that confusion tells us is that the storyline from Christmas moving forward is going to be a little bit different than what the first stanza prepared us for. The first stanza prepares us to worship a king. It prepares us for glory. We like glory. The second stanza prepares us to be offended by a criminal. It prepares us for humiliation. And we don't like humiliation. Now if you'll notice this, the second stanza builds towards the cross, which is already hinted at by the rejection that is felt palpably as the carol places us in a manger. And so we're left to ask, 
This is a king. Why are we in a barn and not a palace? This is a king. Why is he stretched out as a criminal and pierced by a spear? What we have in the second stanza is the stumbling block of the gospel in lyric. What we have in the second stanza is this. That even Christmas worship, as all Christian worship does, but even Christmas worship happens, only happens, in the shadow of the cross. Augustine once marveled at the fact that, you know, we love the cross, right? But in the crucifixion scenes, no one is, no one is worshiping Jesus. The church is pretty small at that moment, wouldn't you say? It's maybe one thief. But at the end of history, the last scene in Revelation, everyone is worshiping Jesus, right? In fact, in some ways, the last scene in Revelation is a replay of the manger scene intensified a thousand times over. All the nations are there. And I don't expect you to remember this, so I'm going to tell you the answer, but how does Jesus appear in that scene? Some of you may know it. Does he appear as a lion? No. In the final scene, he appears as a lamb. Isn't that strange? It's strange because at the moment he actually became a lamb, no one was there. When he was arrested, when he was bound, when he was tortured, when he was ridiculed, when he was crucified, everyone had left. The disciples were gone. The father turned his face away. But at the end of history... Jesus reappears as a lamb and no one leaves. Notice that. No one leaves. No one turns away. The nations are enthralled by his beauty. We can't help but stare at him. We cannot take our eyes off him. So what has changed? What has changed at the end of Revelation? Clearly, it's not him that's changed, relatively speaking. He's a lamb in both places. So what's changed? It has to be us. We're the ones who have changed. Somehow the Lamb has transformed us from deserters to worshipers. Somehow we have come as the church to love what was once offensive to us. And so how does that happen? Think about that for a second. How do your loves get changed? Think about how hard it is to actually change what you love. I mean, it's virtually impossible. Think about this for a second. Do you think you can wake up tomorrow morning and go from being a dog lover to a cat lover, or vice versa? Do you wake up tomorrow morning and go from loving Bach to Toby Keith? I don't know that you can. Can you wake up tomorrow morning and go from being a Rangers fan to a Yankees fan? Does that hit home a little bit harder? Um, I think intuitively what what we know is that we cannot change our love By sheer personal determination, you cannot snap your fingers and change what you love. But I think this is also true. You can be changed by what loves you. You can be changed by how that love gets played out in your life. And I think that's true. I think it's what the carol teaches us. Because it is the true story of the church. Jesus goes from having the adoration of one dying thief, right, to being the desire of the nations. And in both scenes, 
is a lamb. He hasn't changed. We've changed. How has that happened? It's happened because his affections for us have actually transformed, completely transformed our affections for him. He makes us into worshipers, literally, by loving us to death. So why is that important for us to say tonight? It's important for us to say because I think we, you, you come to stanza two and you think this isn't a Christmas song anymore. It's a song about a cross and death and rejection. That's not how I like my Christmas packaged up. But you can't skip stanza two. This is why the carol is so good. There is no theology of glory without a theology of humiliation. There is no Christmas without the cross. And the carol, this carol, will not let you forget that. It will not let you forget that even in the manger, the foolishness of the cross is present. It's present. It's there. It's there in the foolishness of the ass and the ox and the barn. Even in the manger, the love of the cross is present. Even in the manger, the silent word is pleading for you. It is pleading for me. It is pleading for the church to name the baby, right? To identify the child. To call out his name through adoration and submission. Through us learning how to worship him. And what the carol gets right is that we only learn how to do that through the cross. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you've given us men throughout history who have sought not just to explain how the scriptures to us, but have sought to capture it in music. You've given the church art. You've given the church good songs to sing about the gospel. Oh, Lord, we do pray tonight um, that you would make us into worshipers. Uh, oh, God, that you would transform our loves by the way that you have loved us, that we would see that more clearly for ourselves, that we would know the fullness of that love that we would see your hand steadied for us and readied for us on the cross as you loved us to death. Oh God, and we pray that out of that would, uh, Lord, that we would feel as the psalmist did in Psalm 45, that our heart overflows um, as, we, as we sit and just think about the, as we sit and think about the fact that we have the capacity to write poems about the king. God, would you give us that kind of worship? Would you, uh, oh Lord, would you, um, would you help us to repent of our formalism? We don't want to be there. We pray, God, that you would bring us out of it and that you would give us zeal, the right kind of zeal, the right kind of love for you. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.